Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On DAB, digital radio, online and on 1089 and 1053 AM. Icon of all sporting broadcast media and jolly nice chap to boot. Motty Meats on Talk Sport. John Motson, and on this edition of Motty Meets, I'm joined by the former Luton, Leicester, Tottenham, and Sheffield Wednesday manager David Pleat. Steen again, and he gets the cross in, and Williams has come. One of the most memorable moments of David Pleat's managerial career and my own time commentating on football. That Raddy Antiche goal which saved Luton from relegation at Main Road at the expense of Manchester City back in 1983. More of that later. But first, let's start at the beginning, David. You were born in Nottingham a few months before the end of the Second World War. Yes, indeed. January, I think it was. It was a cold winter, I'm told. But um, yes, I was a Nottinghamian and I grew up in Nottingham, went to the grammar school there, Mandela School, only a stone's throw from the forest ground and um, they were my first love. Well, you first made your name as a footballer at the age of 15, playing for England's schoolboys against Scotland at Wembley in front of 95,000. And I gather you scored what was described as a wonder goal in a 5-3 win. You make me feel very humble, John, but it was. I think it went in off the far post and it was an amazing run. But I remember others in the team, of course, people like uh, Ron Harris, Ray Bloomfield, uh, Ray Hewitt, Barry Fry was inside right. Uh, Yes, a a great game. And I think it was the day that Tom Finney retired. I remember one or two of the headlines. Not that I took any notice of them, but um, yeah, Tom Finney retired on that day. I don't remember the date. He did, he did. And the press... One or two uh, papers, you're too modest to mention. The press hailed you as the new Tom Finney. And a few weeks later, you signed for Nottingham Forest at the age of 15. That's quite right. I walked to Billy Walker's house, which is in a village called Ruddington, which is very near me at Clifton. And I always remember Billy. He was a very, uh, what's the word, experienced manager, great inside forward, played for England. And always remember him saying to me, remember, son, if you do well at football, bricks and mortar. 
Well, you made your debut at 17 for Forest, David, but um, you did stay there for a while. In fact, you, uh, you made a handful of appearances, uh, but you left to join Luton Town in 1964. What was the reason behind that move? Well, I'd become displaced at Forest. I'd had a, an injury, a back injury. I'd played against Wolves. It was a third-team game. I always remember it. I remember their half-back line. Goodwin, Woodfield and Knighton. Always remember those three, like three solicitors, good players. And someone hit me in the back as I went to the byline and fell right in the base of my spine uh, in the coccyx area. I never, ever really recovered from that my whole career. It affected me. And I lost that little bit of pace. But they signed Trevor Hockey. And they signed a guy called Mike Keir. And they had an amateur player called John Rowland. And Chris Crow came. And that was the important one from Blackburn. So Johnny Carey, I realised I wasn't a fool, that I was going down in the pecking order rather than becoming this uh, wonderful young player. And Peter Taylor, who was very much my mentor and uh, friend, said to me, son, you need first-team football. You know, you're going to have to have that edge and you need first-team football. And that's how it came about that... Um, you know, on the way to Luton Town in Bedfordshire. Well, you joined Luton in 1964 and they were in the old third division then, but you moved on, actually. You made 70 league appearances for Luton and you moved to Shrewsbury Town for a short spell before moving over to Exeter City in 1968. Well, yes, I mean, the first uh, incident, I broke my leg at Luton. It was a bad break and um, there was a new regime at Luton and Alan Brown, um, who himself broke a leg, a very important one in the semi-final of FA Cup. The manager gave me a free transfer. I went to Shrewsbury. I remember Arthur Rowley, the manager there, is a very dour man, a great forward. I think he scored something like 360 goals. And um, he said to me when I went to see him, if you don't sign, I'm going to take Bernard Lewis from Cardiff. And I remember I probably should have walked away then. But I had a season at Shrewsbury. And then, of course, Exeter City. I enjoyed Exeter City. The manager was uh, Frank Broom, another ex-Villa international top man. And I always remember Frank joking. I said, why have you signed me, Mr. Broom? You know, what is it that attracts me to you? He said, you've got no problems here. I said, look, I need to be playing in the team. I don't want to be a squad player. I need to be. He said, don't worry, you'll be in the team. We've only got 13 players. And that was that. <laughs> now, in that period at Exeter... In 1969, you played Manchester United in the third round of the FA Cup, losing 3-1 at home. But they were then the European champions. I remember, but they had players not so well known. I remember Fitzpatrick and Sartori, I think, were in that team. But of course, best Charlton and Law as well. And the amazing thing about that game was everyone thought George Best wasn't playing because they saw him in the tunnel at about 20 to 3 with his clothes on and his suit on and then someone came into the dressing room and said, guess what, Best is not playing. But of course at 5 to 3, that's when we went out to warm up. Sure, <laughs> Best was on that field I bet and we was. lost 3-1. Now, you left Exeter for Peterborough uh, and that was your last club before you retired with a back injury? Well, what happened at Peterborough was Jim Eilie was the manager, sadly just passed away. Jim did everything at Peterborough. He took the free kicks, the corners, went and headed them. He wanted to head the corners in himself, poor old Jim. He was really on top of everything himself. But Peter Taylor rang me and said, I've, you've got a chance to go to Nuneaton Borough as manager. I've recommended you. I said, Peter, I'm too young. He said, if you're good enough, you're young enough. Anyway, I went for the interview. Uh, Morris Setters, I think, had an interview and also a wonderful insight for called David Gibson, Leicester. I got the job. I joked that I got the job because I accepted more money than they offered. But um, it was a great apprenticeship, really. Two and a half years as a player manager at uh, Nuneaton Borough. 
And of course, Peter Taylor, Brian Clough's sidekick, uh, was was a key figure, wasn't he, in that part of your career? Now, after that, after Nuneaton, you joined the coaching staff of Luton Town. How did this come about? Well, I, I was struggling at Nuneaton. We were knocked out of the Southern League Cup. We got beat in the league at Kettering. I lost my goalkeeper and uh, Ron Atkinson was the manager. We lost 4-1. I think Ron Atkinson put in his book 4-0. I've never really checked that, but it's just this memory that we did get a goal that day. But anyway, they told me that I had to come to a meeting on the Sunday to uh, justify the performance. I said I wouldn't come. I would be there Monday morning as usual, first thing. Anyway, that was the end of that one. And um, Peter Taylor rang me straight away and said, we've got awful problems at Derby. You wouldn't believe it. But if we get another job, there'll be a job for you. Don't worry. And Harry Haslam rang me. He more or less said, I'd like you to come to Luton. You wouldn't be the reserve coach yet. I'll put you in as reserve coach. You'll have to wait until two people leave my staff. They're going to go to Cardiff. Ken Whitfield and Jimmy Andrews. Sure enough, at the end of that season, they did both go to Cardiff City. And uh, I became the reserve coach and moved up from there. How had the club changed from your time as a player at Luton? It was incredible at Luton. The players were so... It was, they were old players. They were... They were old sweats. They had been wonderful servants. Gordon Turner, Morton, Bainham, uh, Pacey. They'd been in the cup final. They were past it. There was no athleticism. There was no enthusiasm. We had John O'Rourke and Ray Whitaker, colleagues of mine in the England youth team. And uh, I remember one day going back for training, which I was always used to in the afternoons at Nottingham Forest, going back for training and seeing, I thought it was, I had to look again, the centre-half in white overalls on the... Uh, steep incline that goes down towards the ground. They're carrying a big battery up to the, uh, the motor company. I thought that's our centre-half, Fincham. And sure enough, it was. They all had part-time jobs. <laughs> well, it, they were promoted, Luton, actually, to the top flight in 1974, lasted one season. And then in 1978, Harry Haslam, who you'd been working for, departed and joined Sheffield United. And lo and behold, January 1978, you're promoted to manager at Luton, at the tender age of 33. Yes, it's unbelievable. When we look back now, remember my first game as the coach in charge, I was at Crystal Palace, 40,000 against Venables, Crystal Palace, the team of the 80s, or supposed team of the 80s. Um, and then Roy, uh, Roy McCrowan left for Detroit for, with, with Jimmy Hill. And all of a sudden it opened up, not that I had any ambition at that time to be the manager particularly. In fact, when I actually was given the job by Mr. Mortar, a very kindly chairman, I remember for three days I, I didn't think I had anything to eat. I was, it was like a nerves had overtaken me that had finally got into this position of, uh, of, of responsibility. Um, amazing. But the first game, I think, one of the cup ties was 4-0 away at Millwall, lost. And anyway, they had faith and I must have shown them something and they persevered and uh, it was the start of a wonderful era. Well, you certainly signed some well-known players, didn't you? I mean, I'm just thinking of the team at that time, your, your Mal Donaghy's, your David Mosses, Brian Horton, homegrown talent like Ricky Hill and Brian Steen. Yeah, Ricky, I saw in a schoolboy match. I brought Ricky to the club. He was playing at Hitchin for Sir John Kelly School, Cricklewood. I brought him to the club, Ricky Hill. I brought Steen to the club. He was playing for Edgware Town at Boreham Wood one Tuesday night. I'd gone to see my parents who were living at Boreham Wood and I went on to the game at Boreham Wood and I saw this boy Steen. What a player. What a wonderful player. 
And, of course, the other players where we were lucky. We, I had a good assistant who had a good eye for players too. Early days, we signed Bob Hatton, who was a very influential with his experience early on. And then it just, uh, it just grew from there. Some wonderful players. Donaghy, £15,000 from Larne, sold to Manchester United for 500000 600 games later. That's a signing. Now, you also signed a player who would play a major part in this story, the Yugoslav Radi Antich from Spanish club Real Zaragoza. Yes, another story. There was an agent called Dennis Roach who had a very nice man called Sava Popovic who worked for him. Sava rang me one day, I think it was on the Thursday, he said, Jim Smith was due to go out to Zaragoza with me to watch a player on Sunday. He can't go now. I believe you're looking for a centre-back. Do you want to come with me? I'm going to watch this boy, uh, Antiche. My word, what an impression he made. He played a couple of one-twos coming out from the back, went forward. Uh, he introduced me to him, to the player after the game, because I was taken by him. Met his wife. They said, what a lovely, lovely people. And then when I got to the airport on the way back, I picked up a soccer magazine. He was on the front cover. I thought, that's destiny. We must <laughs> sign him. You had a great season in 1981-82, didn't you? You won the second division championship, only one week off the top spot from October. You amassed 88 points and you clinched the title eight points ahead of second place arch rivals just down the road, Watford. And of course, they were probably playing a different style of football under Graham Taylor to what you were playing at Luton, David. And we're delighted to be at Kenilworth Road where Luton started brightly. It was a good move involving Brian Steen, showing his ability to turn and shoot just before he put Luton in front after a quarter of an hour. The really weren't playing well, and Shrewsbury, who battled hard throughout the night, deserved their equaliser after an hour. There's a good ball coming in from David Tong, hesitation, and a great volley there from Ian Atkins. So it looked as though Luton's night was going to be ruined before a devastating finish, three goals in the last 12 minutes. Donaghy jumps highest, and look at that for a volley from Ricky Hill. Hill obviously not fully fit, but really justifying his manager's confidence there. Just a minute later, and look out for a good pass from number 11, David Moss. Moss picks the ball up there, threads it through, and here's Steve White in the clear. White hadn't had the best of nights, but still with the confidence to take on Griffin and Kay and find the finish to beat Wardle. And then it was David Moss with the perfect finale. Really, another demonstration of Luton's individual skills. Moss goes all the way, and what a finish that from the tightest of angles. Luton 4, Shrewsbury 1, and that meant promotion. But through it all, the calmest man was the Luton manager, David Pleat. David, a bit quiet with all the celebrations going on all around you. Well, we're just, we're just delighted, really. We kind of deflated, but we're inflated, if you understand it. We didn't think we played too well in the first half. And it came right in the end, like the song. You know, the last 25 minutes we played, we've, we've won the game. We're delighted to win the game. We think we deserve promotion. You know, we're not uh, egotists, but we think we deserve it. We're thrilled to bits, really. Yes, we were accused of being sycophantic uh, at times uh, because we spoke, uh, we spoke nicely of each other. I was not opposed because every style has its uh, good points and well coached which Graham was a good coach um, it was very difficult to play against but but we played the ball we worked the ball we played passing football we played imaginative football we cre creative football and uh, we were delighted to beat Watford in that season uh, by those amount of points we had great games against them and we always tried to cool the passion of the spectators which got overheated at times but we were enemies but friendly enemies this is Motty 
Meets on Talk Sport with David Pleat. Now, your first season in the top flight, 1982-83. Let me bring you to the last day of the season, the 14th of May. Luton needed a win at Main Road against Manchester City to stay up. Luton had to win. They had 46 points. City were on 47. So a draw for City would be enough for them to survive with Brighton and Swansea already having been relegated. So just what, tell me about the build-up to that game and, and how, how your week was, was developing. Well, in the penultimate Saturday, we had a shock. We lost 5-1 at home to Everton. All the other teams in the vicinity of the relegation area won. So all of a sudden we were plunged into it and we had to go to Manchester United. I think it was on the Monday and we accepted that we couldn't win at Man United. It was going to be very difficult. I put two youngsters in. I think I had Ray Ray Daniel and Gary Parker made debuts. And I remember how close I was to the the captain, a wonderful captain, Brian Horton. And we spoke about the team selection. I always remember I involved him in the team selection and we decided to go for the Man City game and we'd have to... And on the Tuesday, what I'd done was I'd arranged to play a game with Graham Taylor for Ross Jenkins, a testimonial. And that was an incredible occasion because even though we'd been beaten at Manchester United on the Monday, if I remember rightly, we played on the Tuesday at Watford and we got the most terrible abuse from the fans. Graham Taylor was magnificent, went on the field at half-time, told the fans to respect Luton. and what other team facing a relegation battle on the Saturday would come and play a testimonial having played the previous day. Incredible. I took them to the health farm at Henlow. I tried to relax them. We talked about uh, all sorts of things and trying to get them mentally, mentally ready for this game. Paul Elliott tells some good stories about that. But anyway, I had family problems. My wife's father died just hours really before the, before the game. I was getting phone calls. But someone smiled on us. And uh, with three minutes to go, Antich, who I'd brought on a substitute, hit this terrific shot past the goalkeeper, Alex Williams. That was the good fortune. We won 1-0. And, of course, people remember that, John, yeah. and they keep talking about that run onto the field. But, of course, what I remember was the four seasons leading up to it, which each season we bettered our previous year's position. So it was the work that had put in. And had we lost it, as I said to Peter Swells at the time, can you imagine Luton trying to get back up there? We'd fought so hard to get there. Man City would get back there. They were a big club. And it was terrible. John Benson was crying, you know, people crying. And Luton won. And that's well, what it was all about. Let's hear that moment again. 30 years ago. And there's four minutes, three or four minutes to go. And I was up in the commentary box thinking, nil-nil, this is Luton going down. And then let's hear what happened. Steen drove it low against Caton. And Steen again. And he gets the cross in. And Williams has come. And Tish! was regarded as a, a something of a jig across the main road picture. Was it the shoes that caught people's imagination, do you remember? Well, it was uh, the, uh, like a kangaroo, a dervish, a kangaroo. I don't know how to describe it, John, but I lost it, emotion of it. And the strange thing was I didn't go to the goal scorer. I went to my captain. Brian Horton. 
Yes, there were also some ill-mannered City fans swarming onto the pitch. There, were, there was a bit of a scene, actually, the aftermath of the game. And I remember we managed to get all the Luton team into the gym for me to interview them for match of the day. That was unusual to get a whole team in. You went on, um, a lot happened at Luton around that time. Paul Walsh, of course, you lost him to Liverpool. You signed the great, I say the great Mick Harford, a real Luton legend uh, from Birmingham City. But I'm going to take you forward now to a night that was infamous in many ways. And we were both there. I was in the commentary box, Kenilworth Road, the FA Cup sixth round, Luton Town versus Millwall. Now, I think we ought to hear something here, and this will set up what you're going to tell me. It's getting uglier and uglier out there. There's now an invasion from behind the goal, which has added to it. Other people are coming onto the pitch. Bearing in mind what we saw before the match and what we're seeing now, they're outnumbering the police. scenes at Kenilworth Road and this is what British football has got to contend with now it happened at Millwall back in 78, it happened at other places too and before that Nobody seems to be able to control it. Just look well, at this. It was a dreadful night, wasn't it, David? I mean, I don't know what your memories of it are. Well, well it was shocking. And in retrospect, one third of the supporters who sat in the bobbers stand on the opposite side to the commentary position and never renewed their season tickets. They were terribly um, in- intimidated that night, people throwing bricks. I remember in the tunnel... And the director's box, they were throwing billiard balls into the, into the, uh, people into the director's box. There was people in the tunnel that were cut. And I always remember the following morning having to go with the, uh, ch- with the, the chief executive, John Smith, to the House of Commons to uh, sit in front of some very um, uh, serious-looking MPs who were really staggered by this football violence. I remember the way your chairman reacted. We all, you, we both remember David Evans, of course, Conservative MP. Uh, he imposed a ban on all away supporters from your ground for a while. A club membership uh, scheme was introduced. Um, all their fans had to carry their membership cards to be admitted to matches. I mean, it really was symptomatic of that era, David, wasn't it? Hooliganism was at its worst in the 80s, I think. Yes, it was. And of course, when I look back at the crowds, you know, it's quite amazing. The, the crowds were, were really poor for, for a while and people were really worried. The whole image of football had, had taken such a knock and um, it's, it, it, it's, it recovered itself, uh, fortunately. And uh, we can see today's game has cleaned that up. I remember that night very clearly. So sad. I was speaking with George Graham after the game, the Millwall manager in the boardroom. And George told me that that type of event had made him realise he'd done quite well at Millwall that it may be time for him to move on because of an element of supporters that were there. Not all Millwall supporters. There's some very nice people at Millwall, but unfortunately there was some organisation behind it and there was other people who infiltrated and decided to come from London that day to cause problems. That was the case. Now, what it did mean, of course, because it was a sixth-round tie that, you were now in the semi-final. And I was there again. This was at uh, Villa Park. And you took a first-half lead through a fine shot by Ricky Hill. I remember that. Everton equalised in injury time from a Kevin Sheedy free kick. I always remember they won in extra time, incidentally, a Derek Mountfield header. But I always remember Steve Foster with his headband coming out the dressing room after the game and saying to me, how near were we, John? Four minutes. And you were close, weren't you? 
Um, I have to, to say, to one, of the, one of the few few times when I've, after having a few drinks after the game, going home and crying, because I realised how close we were. I didn't realise it at the time. Three minutes away, the free kick should never have been given. It's my opinion. John Martin of Alton would yeah. disagree with me, <laughs> uh, because Harford and Foster got in each other's way. The free kick went to Everton. Sheedy squeezed it in. It was a bit of a goalkeeping mistake too by dear Les Seeley, no longer with us. And, of course, we, we in extra time, and I'm told I've never seen that game again. I'd love to see it again someday, but I haven't seen it again because it was such a bad feeling. But I'm told we missed chances. We outplayed Everton for lots of that game. We were the underdogs. They were the top team in the country at the time. Now, while you were at Luton as well, the artificial pitch. Tell me about that. Well, it was suggested by the chief executive and the chairman, and the bottom line was that uh, the players will play better on it. They gave me all the reasons. I wasn't going to argue. I was the manager. I was never, ever in a strong enough position to dictate the policy of the club completely, particularly as they suggested to me that income from the artificial pitch would be worth £250,000 a year. That was a lot of money in those days. And the community could use it, of course. Uh, Walter Winterbottom, and there was various people on a committee who came and tested the pitch. It was a pitch made by a company called Cress Nicholson, which was a Leicester company at the time. The bounce of the ball disturbed people. But I remember coming to watch people on the Friday afternoon. They were given the opportunity to train on it. I remember watching Manchester United and Hughes hitting these 20-odd shots, ripping in the net on Friday afternoon. I thought, crikey, we're going to struggle tomorrow against some of these players of Manchester United. And, and that happened regularly. But, of course, when we got on the pitch, we played it to feet. We passed the ball quickly. It made us better players. It made us better creative players. And also... Players couldn't tackle and slide in anymore. They had to stay on their feet and tackle properly. I, I'm a great believer in artificial pitches, and it's been proved by FIFA and UEFA in the subsequent years. I'm surprised more clubs haven't got them. Of course, in Scotland they have. But many world tournaments now, particularly for the women, are played on artificial pitches, and also in Eastern Europe, of course. Yeah, they're better than they were, though, aren't of they, course they are. the 3G? Of course or they, they are. Of course they are. Yeah. Now, Luton finished ninth in the first division, by the way, in that season with the pitch that I'm talking about. But on the 16th of May 1986, a big moment in your life, because after your success at Luton, you're appointed the manager of Tottenham Hotspur. Yes. The previous year, they'd, they'd come for me through the back door with about 12 games to go. And uh, we faded at Luton. This is a true story. And Tottenham did OK. And they said to me, well, it's not going to happen now. We're going to keep Peter Shreve for another year. I didn't, it didn't overly upset me. And the following year, I mean, there's a big story in my life came from the following year because I decided it was time to go when they approached me. I'd done, I think, nine years at Luton Town. We got better every year. I was leaving a very good team. I understood that. But Tottenham was a big opportunity. And the terrible thing was David Evans and his wife came around my house. One of the biggest defining moments in my whole life, really. And they were so nice to me. They bought me champagne, flowers, anything that Tottenham offer you, we'll give you. And I said, look, David, it's gone. I've finished. I've decided it's time for me to move. I've got to do this for my family, for my career. And I want to have a shot at the big time. And I'll, to this day, I remember David, as he walked out that door, he says, if you go, you'll pay for this. This is Motty Meats on Talk Sport with David Pleat. So that was a pretty difficult moment for you, David, when uh, David Evans put so much sort of emphasis on you staying. 
it didn't affect me at the time because um, I'd, I'd, made the I'd made the decision and I'd left Luton in very good hands. But he said certain things in the press which made it uncomfortable for me as time went on in, during that season. And I remember Luton coming and playing quite well and getting a draw at Tottenham in that season. But of course, we, we introduced, if you like, a system of play, a, almost a democratic decision, really. I looked at the players we'd got. Roberts uh, wanted to leave. He'd been tapped up by Souness. Um, Galvin had got injured and we decided to go a slightly different method to what other teams were playing and the boys bought into it beautifully. Well, this was, this was your famous 4-5-1 with Clive Allen as the lone striker and my goodness, what a first season you had. Yes. You were going for a treble, weren't you? Yes, we were going for a treble. We, 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 it was wonderful, really. And I remember wonderful people like John Lyle, God rest his soul, who, who wrote me a most beautiful letter saying how proud you must be to manage that team. It was, I couldn't believe it. Another manager. We'd been in West Ham twice in about five days, 4-0 and 5-0, I think, in... And um, he wrote me this letter. But um, we, we, we managed to get Hoddle just behind the front one where it suited him because Hoddle wasn't great at tracking and he enjoyed the freedom to play and extend his beautiful abilities to, to the maximum. So he played behind Clive. We had a lovely balance. Waddle stayed wide and hated it. He wanted to play in Hoddle's position. Came to me after one game with Aston Villa. We'd won 3 0, we'd played well. And he said, I want to play central. I said, I'm sorry, Chris, for the moment you're going to have to play wide. Hoddle's going to play there. And Hodge was a great worker on the left-hand side, one of the signings from Forrest. And Goff and Mabbott were fine centre-halves. And Bill Nicholson said to me one day about Robertson-Miller, which is very interesting, very clever Bill Nicholson. He said, do you think your centre-backs foul too much? And I thought, interesting. They've done very well together, Robertson-Miller, but they did give away a lot of free kicks, you know. Anyway, Goff and Mabbott became the centre-back pairing, Ray Clements in goal. And we had a wonderful season. And people say to me now, apart from the 60-61 side I was fortunate enough to see, and the current side, which is very good, and Venables had a good side, I think, in 91. I think that was as good a side as Tottenham's had, for sure, in the last 50 years or so. Well, Clive Allen scored 49 goals that season, including 33 in the league. You finished third in the first division. You also lost to Arsenal after a replay in the League Cup semi-final. Third game. Third game. What I remember best is the FA Cup final against Coventry because I thought for quality, it was one of the best FA Cup finals I ever commentated on. Yes, John, I, I remember, and you, you have said that before, and I really appreciate that. It was a fine game. Of course, it was no consolation for us. It was a very sad occasion. There was a terrible mix-up over the shirts. Some boys wore Holston shirts, some boys didn't. None of them were to blame, I assure you. The chairman couldn't cope with defeat. He was very poor in defeat, scholar. Not gratuitous at all. He expected us to win. We all hoped to win. Didn't happen for us. You've got to give credit to people like Dave Bennett, who played for them, Mickey Jin, who marked Hoddle out the game at the, on, on that occasion, Hoochin's diving header. It was, as you say, John, it was a wonderful spectacle. But, of course, we felt, went to extra time. And what a lot of people didn't know was that Richard Goff was really struggling with injury going into extra time. Gary Mabbott, who had this terrible problem with diabetes, he's, he couldn't feel his toes. He couldn't feel his feet. And so both my centre-halves going into extra time were really almost on one leg. Midgley was the referee, Neil Midgley, another fine referee who's passed away now. But Neil Midgley should have sent a player off of Coventry. I think it was um, uh, the centre-back. Uh, Graham Roger came on a substitute and was... In, 
I think he was involved in the goal, but um, there should have been. A, I, I think there was an occasion in, during the game where they might have had 10 men. But anyway, by the by, Coventry won it. Credit to John Sillett and George Curtis. You know, good luck to them. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Now, your departure from Tottenham later that calendar year, 1987, all sorts of circumstances, the underlying feeling about that, and you're going to tell me if this is true or not, is that Tottenham already wanted Terry Venables. They'd already spoken to Venables. I knew that, uh, two journalists, and I believe them. He had, he had a thing about Terry. I get on well with Terry. But he had a thing about Terry, that Terry had this thing, he was the, the greatest coach since sliced bread but that wasn't uh, I don't think that was the real reason why they pushed me out I got some awful publicity which was which was I can assure you undeserved 95% of it was untrue but of course they seized on something they got people to say things which weren't true they paid them money to say things and unfortunately the pressure of it became too intense for me to, to cope with maybe if I would have had a very strong solicitor at the time maybe a strong advisor I probably could have gone through it I don't know but it certainly affected me it upset me it was very difficult for my family my poor mother, I won't begin to tell you how that, what happened to her. But um, it's, it's a terrible chapter. And um, I decided, after speaking with one or two people who were really trustworthy, that it was best to carry on and keep going. I love football and I wanted to stay in football. And within months, I, well, very quickly, I was offered jobs. I went to Greece, uh, Olympiakos. Didn't fancy that at all. Wasn't ready to go abroad. And Leicester City came along, they were bottom of the league, and we had a wonderful run, made favourites the following season. We went right up the league, and I had a very, very good team at Leicester City. You did, and we'll come back to Tottenham later as well, because you hadn't finished your relationship with that club, as we shall discover. Now then, Luton comes back onto the agenda here, David. June 1991, the club had just avoided relegation after finishing just third from bottom in uh, the old first division. How did you find the club compared to what you'd left five years earlier when you went to Tottenham? It's interesting. I mean, it's a small club in a close environment. I still knew 
more or less all the people. Jim Ryan was very unlucky to lose his job. I think there was a clash with the, the chairman. The chairman at the time knew very little about football and was, was very unfair. But they thought that the, they didn't want to get involved in another relegation struggle. And rightly or wrongly, and the team was beginning to fade, um, they decided to um, bring me back. And it happens at a lot of clubs, actually, that sometimes the, the memory... Uh, is probably stronger than the actual, uh, at, at that moment, the, the needs of the club. But I came back. I developed a very young team there. We got a relegation. Yes. But I, and I developed a very young team, which got to an FA Cup semi-final. We did very well. Telfer, Hughes, Pembridge, some very good young players. But, um, you know, it was another stage. Yes, in spite of that relegation, the FA Cup again looms large here. I mean, you got to the semi-final, as you said, um, and played Chelsea uh, at Wembley in 1994. Hughes. Chelsea, courtesy of two goals by the delighted Gavin Peacock, whose expression is mirrored on the faces of their other players and all their supporters, will return to play in the FA Cup final at Wembley. The trophy will be won by a team from the Premier League. And there is delight from Chelsea supporters who've waited so long. Good applause for the losers from Luton Town, who on the day couldn't find the style that they'd shown previously in the competition. The biggest problem there was if we'd have played at Villa Park or probably Hillsborough, it would have suited us better. I think the young players going to Wembley, they, they, it was in their minds there at Wembley, the ultimate, the goal, the great Wembley Stadium. And we had problems with tickets, the directors arguing over tickets and all these little side issues, which, which I didn't really need. And my young team didn't cope on the day. Cascarino did well for them. He won the aerial battles. Peacock got the two goals. We got beat 2-0. Hoddle and uh, Peter Shreves were in charge of the Chelsea team and they progressed to the final, which they lost to Manchester, I think, 4-0 uh, that year. But um, it, was a, it was another great achievement. I made a big mistake that year, the, for sure. I played Kerry Dixon. I spoke to about it since, to Kerry Dixon. I sh I'd done well. We'd beaten Newcastle in a replay. We'd done well. Hartson had done well yes. as well as another young player. Mm -hmm. and, and we'd got all these young players... And I should have gone with Hartson. And I went with Kerry Dixon. And Kerry Dixon was a Chelsea icon. And I, I don't want to be flippant, but it was that day, it was as though Kerry was almost scared, afraid <laughs> to, to put one over on Chelsea. Who knows? But um, no, Chelsea were better than us on the day. one 2 nil, And uh, so it was another very dis big disappointment. You left Luton um, to become manager of Sheffield Wednesday in 1995, succeeding Trevor Francis in that role. Um, very different club, I would think, wasn't it? Big club. Ch chairman, Dave Richards, who we could write a book about since. Sheffield Wednesday, uh, working class area, not able to maximise financially the uh, opportunities that uh, it had. And I inherited some very, very good players, but with the greatest respect to them. And I spoke to John Sheridan and Chris Waddle since. They were on their last legs. They'd been wonderfully successful with Ron Atkinson, and I'd picked them up at the wrong time. And I didn't have time. And I had one young player, and he, he decided he'd already gone to Frank Clark at Forest, Bart Williams. But I had Sheridan. I had Chris Woods. I had Des Walker. Not easy to handle Des Walker. I had Chris Waddle. 
and they were all very fine players, but they didn't have the legs. And that first season was very difficult for me to survive it. But in the second season, I introduced young legs, athletic people, Whittingham, Hyde, Briscoe, Atherton, honest players, and we did very well. We started, I think I was manager of the month, the first couple of months, uh, we were top of the league, top of the Premier League. It, you know, it was, uh, you know, in the, it was quite incredible. But we faded after Christmas and we finished, I think, something like sixth or seventh. Anyway, we went no seventh because we missed Europe by a point. And sadly, the last game of the season when we needed to win to get into Europe, Liverpool, our opponents, also needed to win to get into Europe. Roy Evans was the manager. And would you believe it? They were so upset. They drew 1-1. Ellery allowed a goal which should never have been allowed. He sent my goalkeeper off for outside the box. We drew 1-1. We lost sixth position. Liverpool lost the Champions League and we both, within a period of time, lost our jobs. Goodness me. While you were at Wednesday and you were running through some names there, there was a Serbian duo, Dejan Stefanovic and uh, Kovacovic. Kovacovic. And there was some story about their diet, David. What's all that about? Well, I went round to the... They were staying in a, in a flat near, near where <laughs> I was staying. I went round and I saw all these uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken boxes, which, which upset me a little bit. And I didn't look after the foreign players well enough. But those, in those days, John, we didn't have the people... I remember Klassen coming to Tottenham. I remember those two players there. We should have had someone with them all the time, taking them everywhere, looking after them, looking after their diets, all these things that are happening now, which we didn't happen then. And But I must tell you, Kovacovic had a wonderful career after he left Sheffield Wednesday. He went from big club to big club for millions and millions of pounds. Stefanovic, too, played till he's 36. I think he finished it somewhere like Portsmouth. He went to Holland. He went. Those two boys, they came out of, which was the old state of Yugoslavia then, they came out too early. It, they'd released, a, they'd put a new rule where they could come out at 18. Previously, you couldn't come out of that country until you were 27, 28. We signed them. I signed them on the strength of Mick Mills, my chief scout, saying he's seen another Kevin Beatty. That was Stefanovic. And the centre forward, Kovacovic, outstanding in the air, good left footer, not such a good liver off the field, but um, they both had great careers. Kovacovic, my word, he went for millions. Juventus all over the place. Sociedad. Well, uh, and also, while we're talking about overseas signings, Paolo Di Canio. Well, I'll tell you the story. So I go to Glasgow to watch this man, Di Canio, I'd seen on the television, you know, wheedling his way past uh, several defenders. So I get a taxi from the Al uh, to the Albany Hotel because I was early. The taxi driver said, oh, I know who you've come to watch today. We've only got one player. Anyway, I have my coffee, get another taxi to the ground. Next taxi driver says to me, uh, you've had it today. I know who you're watching, but he's not going to play. He's got a groin injury. No, it was in the paper last night. You, you won't see him today, but he's easily our best player. So anyway, I watched the game. Sure, they're right. He didn't play. I came back, left 10 minutes early to catch the plane from uh, Glasgow Airport. Third taxi driver said, ah, you've missed him today. He's out of this world, De Canio. Go back to Sheffield. The chairman says to me, well, what did you think? I said, chairman, we've got to take him. Three taxi drivers can't be wrong. <laughs> and you did take him. How good was De Canio? Outstanding player in many, many aspects, but crazy. I'm sorry to say that. I bought him as a companion, in a way, for Carboni, who was a yes. very sulky, sullen boy, but very talented. 
And uh, when Roy Hodgson, I spoke to Roy Hodgson, who was my Inter Milan manager at the time, and said, asked about him. He said, look, he said, we're just coming back from a game. We've just won the game. Cavoni didn't play. He's sitting on the back seat now and he's sulking. The two of them raised the standard. There's yeah. no question about that. They were very talented. And, uh, of course, the, the beneficiary of his uh, crazy challenge with the referee Alcock was Harry Redknapp, who eventually took the chance of him and made him, made him uh, a god at West Ham. This is Motty Meats on Talk Sport with David Pleat. When you left Sheffield Wednesday, late 1997, we're back at Tottenham now as director of football. And on and off, you stayed there for about seven years. But I want to ask you about the first time you took over as caretaker manager after the sacking of Glenn Hoddle in 2003. Yeah. Um, now, <laughs> I'm going to tell you this story because I was there again. Uh, an amazing match, an FA Cup replay. And you might have to refresh my memory here. You were three goals up at half-time mm. against Manchester City. Mm. As the players left the pitch, mm. the referee gave Joey Barton a red card. We came into the dressing room. We'd played well first half. We were 3-0 up. And I had to calm them down, whatever. Someone came into the dressing room and said, he's just sent Joey Barton off in the tunnel. Goodness me. 3-0 up against 10 men. Went out in the second half. We missed a couple of easy chances. That would have put us 4-0 up. Poye missed chances. And uh, anyway, as the game went on... They scored a goal on the break. Then they scored another on the break. It was quite incredible. Ledley King, who I introduced into a very talented boy, we, he was left back that evening and Wright Phillips was the winger and he gave him a hard time in the second half. On the counter-attack, every time they went forward, they seemed to score. Listen, at, at the end of the day, the goalkeeper had a, a nightmare, Casey Keller, unfortunately. I, I thought he was, he was really poor. I think it was a lad called Mackin who scored a couple of goals for Manchester City. And I always remember feeling sorry in a strange way because Arthur Cox and Kevin Keane were very near to the sack prior to that game. And at half-time, I thought, oh, those poor chaps in the other dressing room are 3-0 down. We were, we were absolutely all over them. Well, the story finalised in the last, uh, in, it went to extra time. And would you believe it? They won 4 3. It was quite remarkable. And it was my Achilles heel, really. It was, a, it was the most terrible evening. I felt suicidal. I went upstairs after doing an interview. I said in the interview to Brian Moore, I think it was at the time downstairs, you know, he asked me what I thought. I, I mean, I just stood there, stared at him. I said, I, no one died. I went upstairs, John, and I always remember with you. Sitting there with you, we had a glass of red wine. The directors of Tottenham couldn't, couldn't cope with it. They'd all disappeared. Everyone had disappeared. I didn't want to go home. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know who to face. I didn't know what to say to people. It's the most terrible moment. But you, you were very good. You sat with me for an hour and we, we had a glass of red wine and slowly the pain disperses, but it does take a while. And I have to say, I think if we'd have won that game and probably gone to the semi-final and got on, they'd probably give me the job full-time at the time. Yeah, probably would, because in fact, you were you were caretaker manager three times. Very successful as well, actually. I know, I know, but, yeah. but I mean, you, they kept bringing you back. Um, but let's just move on now, because when you finally left Tottenham again, 2005, you actually returned to your first club that you referred to at the beginning of the interview, Nottingham Forest. Well, uh, Mr. Doughty contacted me. He was a lovely man, sadly. He's passed away now. A real Forest supporter. You know what? You talk about your hometown club. And I think he read a couple of articles that I'd written in the paper where I was talking about young players. And he, I think he must have been impressed. Anyway, he asked to see me. And he gave me this opportunity to be to what, for whatever, a consultant. 
which was basically another name for a, a, a scout that they would listen to, uh, have me in the meetings and um, be a, sh a, a shoulder uh, and, and uh, uh, you know, someone to listen to. And I enjoyed working for Mr. Dowdy, no doubt. But I had a very difficult manager there, make no mistake about it. We called it the Acquisition Committee. He was involved in it as much as anyone. Of course he was. No player could come to a club without the managers agreeing to it. But, of course, he called it the Inquisition Committee by mistake. And uh, he, wa he, wa he wasn't easy to deal with, was Billy Davis, the manager. But um, that's another story. But, yeah, that was excellent. Excellent time. Tottenham very quickly came in for me and um, they wanted me to come back as a consultant to Tottenham. Which you did. And in that period, and I remember you telling me this story, so please don't deny it. You were the person that persuaded Daniel Levy to take what he thought was a gamble and sign a fella called Deli Alley. I was on the stroke of the day. I'd seen a lot of Deli Alley, and I was convinced. I spoke to Baldini about him. I spoke to all sorts of people about him. I was pushing, pushing, pushing. John, it wasn't clever. He'd played about 75, 80 games, playing for regularly in men's football for a team called MK Dons. Nice people, just down the road. I saw a lot of him, and I was convinced that given the opportunity, he would do well. So right at the, just before the deadline, on I think it was the January, I was going to a game at Luton and all of a sudden the phone rang and it was Daniel Levy. And Daniel said to me, this boy, Ali, we're here, he's going to have a medical or he's going to talk to Villa and to Newcastle. What do you think? I said, Chairman, it's a no-brainer. He said to me, yes, but they want five million for him. I said, chairman, it's a no brainer. I would take him at five million. You can't lose on him. If we are sympathetic, if we encourage him, I think he's got I've got every hope for this particular boy. And of course, he took my advice. Well, good thing he did. Now, I, I just want to go back there on something because I go to a lot of football, as you know, and it doesn't matter where I go, particularly if I dip into the football league and the lower divisions, you're nearly always there. No, I mean, John, it, that's... It, it, well, no, seriously, yes, but we've yes. met at all sorts of places. Yes. Barnet, MK well, Dons. Well, yes, within, you know, within a 40, 50-mile radius. Now, is that your... Obviously, I know you've got a, a consultancy role with Tottenham, but, but is that your enthusiasm for the game? more than anything else, that carries you around all those different clubs? Because yeah. you're, you're not always at Arsenal and Tottenham, are you? Or, no, no, or Everton, no, are you? No, football has been, sadly, John, sadly I say this in a funny kind of way, it's overtaken my life. It's my passion, it's my obsession. I don't know what happened in my life. I wish I was better equipped to do other things, you know, mending a plug, doing some woodworking, I don't know, reading books. Football, I'm interested in football. I love reading football books. I like hearing the commentaries of other people. I like the affinity with other people. I like going to football grounds because I like the people that go to the football matches. Like yourself, John, I'm an enthusiast. I love the game. Where exactly are you now? Still, still working for I'm, Tottenham? I'm still going to games. I'm going to two or three games a week. And um, when I have the opportunity, when there isn't a game, and if I, it clashes with a game that I can see Tottenham play, I like, I like to watch Tottenham play. And I like to see the youngsters emerging at Tottenham too. And with all that experience and years in and around the game, what is it you like about the game, or for that matter, you don't think is as good as it used to be? Well, the, the quality of the players at the highest level 
is very, very good. The influx of the foreign players. I think the academies have helped the quality of the players. Sadly, the academies hasn't helped the gravitation of the boys into the lower grade. The lower grade football is poor, I have to say this. And it's very hard to find a manager brave enough to play a young or two young players in the team. Most of them what I call old sweats because they go from one club to another. There's no future in that. I, if I took over a club now, if I was a chairman, I'd say to the manager, part of our philosophy must be to introduce two players every year. You must have two young players who've come through our ranks because each year or each two years, we must sell a player to help us survive. It's part of the club's philosophy. Maybe it's something I learned at Luton. We always had to sell. We're always selling. But we're selling good players and replacing them with good young players. Facilities are so good now. Everything is done for the players. The wages are obscene. I'm sorry to say that, but they are obscene. When you've got people working in hospitals and people doing voluntary work and you're seeing people getting these fortunes and wasting, wasting the fortunes on Ferraris and Maseratis and all that. But, but I'm not jealous. I, I, I say good luck to them. But I, I think there hasn't been enough control of that. And there should be a cap on the amount of players. The clubs take too many players at, from school. They should only have, say, a maximum of about eight players. That would mean that the big clubs can't take 15 players and hoard players. And therefore, the mediocre or the lesser players would gravitate then to the lesser clubs. I would also say no player should be signed for money until 18 years of age. I don't agree with that. No money should pass hands. I think the agent's business has become absolutely overtaken the game we've seen it happen before our own eyes and allowed it to happen where the agents are almost running the game speaking to chairmen at every opportunity hard for managers that is my yeah. word that's hard and I don't think I'd be a good manager now because I'd get agitated where do you stand on the foreign players because of course Ardiles was with you at Tottenham for a time wasn't yes. he uh, yes. and his signing with Ricky Villa in 78 the Keith Birkinshaw years I mean, that was the start of the flood of foreign players, really, wasn't it? But it, it's become more than a flood now. I mean, wh where do you stand on that? And is it fair to say that they're blocking the path into the first team for English players? Yes, I, but I think we've learnt a lot. I remember seeing a lot of Arsenal Academy games where they had a lot of young foreign players. And now they've realised they're no better perhaps, at that age. And the cultural difference is so massive at that age where they're not mature yet, the young boys, and they can't cope with the change. And it's interesting, the current trend where one or two English players are going abroad and taking that opportunity. But we never exported players before. We imported them, mm. imported them. All the time we were coming in, coming in. We weren't taking them out there. We weren't going to new, new, uh, new foreign fields. So that's changed a little bit. It's a balance. You've got to have a good academy director. You've got to have sensible people. John, I've always believed one thing. Winning isn't everything. It's the, it's the spirit of the game. I love to see a good game. I love to come away seeing good football, what I call creative football, imaginative football, football I love to see. Of course, we want to win. You've got to try and win. The game is about glory. But it's not a be-all and end-all to win. And I say that very strongly because I've seen Tottenham play very well over the last three years and I keep reading, but they've won nothing. OK, they've won nothing. But with the resources they've got, with the, what they've done for the future, the legacy, a new stadium, a wonderful training ground, a very good youth setup where players get a chance and they're not spoilt and we don't pay illegal money. So, so I'm, I'm working for a club which I think has got decent standards. And isn't that what your sort of football life has really been based around? In, if you could have well, it John, again, if I, it could have it again, you, would you change it? Who knows, John? Destiny.
I've enjoyed my life. I've enjoyed the football as you've enjoyed what you've done so well. And it comes almost natural to us. And like you, I've worked with you many times, you prepare properly. And I always think that um, if you're conscientious and you're not just taking the money, that you want, you want to do it properly, then it comes back to you. You get rewarded for it in so many ways. And I shall see you at a few more grounds yet, David. I hope so, John. Thank you very much. This has been Monty Meats. Make sure you subscribe to never miss an episode, and I'll see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 